All right, my brothers and sisters, today, can we all everybody's attention? Today is going to be a little different. Um, if you're looking for the traditional sermon, that'll be next week. Today, <laughs> today will be more of, if you've gone to the traditional church, whatever you want to call it, Wednesday night Bible study, right? We're all familiar with that, right? That's normally a corporate thing. We're all getting together and you're kind of just going through scriptures. You're talking it through. And so today's not going to be your, your typical, let's exegete a text and, and all of that. But I want to introduce you to something that will help you to be a better, better scholar or student of the word, ultimately. And so I want to equip you with a tool or thoughts to consider when you're studying the scriptures. Um, something that, that really helped me as I studied the scripture and that is understanding the Hebraic culture, the Hebraic thought um, when it comes to reading your Bible. And so today we'll be looking at, like I said, just a little study, not a sermon, but more of a teaching. Remember, just not preaching, more of just a teaching, transfer of information on Hebraic thought. And it'll help you, I believe, as it has helped me in my studies to understand the scriptures more to help me understand, okay, this is why Paul says this. This is why this is phrased that way. It better helps you to understand the word when you understand the culture of the people, the language of the people that's in it. So again, this is straight teaching, more of uh, just looking at the Hebraic culture and thought. Don't expect to be too long. But again, this will prime us or prep us for the following week. The following week, we're going to start back the Hijack series, but we're going to the topic of hijack is going to be worship. So we're going to look at worship. It's probably going to be a two to three part series on worship. Um, we'll look at one, the foundations of worship. We'll look at the difference between praise and worship because we often say praise and worship, but the, the two are not the same. They're distinct. What is praise? What is worship? So we'll look at that. Um, then after that, after looking at the foundations, we'll look at expressions of worship, right? Because we want to know if we're on good ground how I express my worship. So we're going to be looking at the scripture, largely at the Psalms, looking at that to see, okay, what is, how did the early Israelites, the Hebrew, Hebraic people, how did they worship God? How, how, how did they express their worship? Um, what can we glean and learn from it? Remember, no church is perfect, but there's always things that we can glean and learn from. So again, today, it's just a, a tool to help you in your own personal devotion and study of scripture on Hebraic thought. And the reason I came here is because I realized in John 15, which I taught last time, it was just a couple of things that I realized that were not said that are essential. And it kind of uh, caused this thought in me, like, hey, let's bring in this Hebraic thought. Let's, let's show the body of Christ the, the context of different things and how it can help benefit you in your own study. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Lord God, we pray on today, Lord, that you help us to get a better understanding of you, your word, God. Open our eyes, God, up to your scripture, Lord. Help us to understand your word in context, culturally. Help us to understand the words of your mouth, God, and how they impact us, Lord God, how they change us, Lord. We pray for wisdom, understanding, God. We pray for alertness, Lord, that we don't... Uh, our body doesn't fall asleep, God, but that we are attentive to the things that are said concerning your word. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
All right, so Hebraic thought. Now, the last time I was up here, again, as I mentioned, I taught on John 15. Remember the vine and the branches, right? That was the last time, the vine and the branches. And in that discussion, the foundation, in that discussion, um, we spoke on how the foundation of a joyful life is bearing fruit for God. If you can kind of recall, I know that was a little while ago. Pastor Brian preached three weeks straight. So it's probably way back there. But we looked at how the foundations of a joy-filled life is bearing fruit. And in that study, we witnessed Jesus telling the disciples that they must bear fruit. That you can't just hang around Jesus and not bear fruit. You can't just hang around the church and not bear fruit, which is really quite prevalent today. There are many people that go to church today on Sunday and they go to church so they can sing, so that they can pray, so that they can clap and get that spiritual feeling. And then they go and live like heathens the rest of the week. But we've seen in John 15 that Jesus says that life that is not bearing fruit, it will get clipped. It will get cut off in this life or the next. And so if we are connected to Jesus, we've seen that we must bear fruit. But also in John 15, we've seen that in order for us to bear fruit, we have to be connected to the vine. Branches can't bear fruit of themselves, right? They have to be attached to the vine. And Jesus goes on in John 15 to say that without me, you can do nothing. So we must be attached to the vine. So now that puts us in a predicament because on one hand, we are disciples. We are required to produce fruit on the one hand. On the other hand, in order for us to produce fruit, we must be attached to the vine. And even the fruit that we produce, we can take no credit. We can only say that it is God working mightily in me, but yet we are responsible. Yet we are still responsible, even though we can't even produce the fruit on our own. It's only by the power of God, only by the power of Christ and his spirit. But yet we are required to produce this fruit. Now for many people, including myself, verses like this can be confusing. Because we say, we say, wait, hold on. You're telling me to produce fruit, but I can't produce fruit on my own. I can only produce the fruit that Jesus allows me to produce. So, so how am I held guilty? How am I still responsible when I can't even in myself produce the fruit? It's only Christ producing the fruit in me, but yet I'm responsible if I don't produce the fruit. That sounds confusing, but that's verses like this and other paradoxical statements in Scripture, they cause us to be confused. And when I say paradoxical statements, I mean statements that seem on the surface to be contradictory. They seem to contradict each other. And as believers, we struggle with verses like this. Are the places in Scripture where we find all of these paradox, all these things that seem to contradict themselves? And the reason that we struggle so mightily sometimes in the scripture while we study with these paradoxical statements can largely be, blazed, be blamed on our culture. We struggle because we are in this American westernized 2019 culture. And that can also, that can sometimes be a hindrance to us understanding scripture. And so we struggle with some of the paradoxical statements in the scriptures. So it's culture, culture, culture. Now what is culture? To define culture, I'm going to borrow a word from Andy Crouch, who in most Christian circles, they would say he's the leading expert on culture. He wrote the best-selling book, Culture Making. Most people say re-culture making. And he defines culture as... <clears throat> 
how human beings make sense of the world. That's culture, how human beings make sense of the world. So language, the language that we use, guess what? That's culture, that's language is culture. The way that we interpret things, our logic, the way we think, it's culture. You may be thinking that, yes, I'm acting independently, I'm thinking on my own, but what you don't realize, you are not. You are heavily influenced by your Western Americanized culture. Um, I have not been to Europe. I haven't been to any European countries yet. But I've read articles and been told by people that go to Europe that in Europe, it's hard to find ice cubes. It's hard to find ice cubes. I'm talking about in your drink. Why? Because in Europe, they serve their drinks room temperature. And if you do get ice, you may get one or two. But here in America, we're, our question is light ice or just a little bit of ice or whatever maybe Ice is a part of our drink. Why? It's our culture. You, you think that you're asking for light ice because you just don't want too much ice. But the fact that you're asking for ice at all is because you have grew up in this American culture. See, you're not acting as independently as you think. It's our culture that plays a role in how we do things, the way that we think. And so we must understand that when we come to this, the word of God, guess what? The Bible was written by who? Hebrews. And I'm going to use the term Hebrews because that speaks more to the ancient people versus Jews, which is more of our modern understanding. I may use them sometimes off and on. But it's, it's written by Hebrew Jewish people. Yes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes. But written from the perspectives from the personality of a person who is steeped in Jewish Hebraic culture and language. Steeped in Hebraic culture and language. And guess what? If we are not aware of this, my brothers and sisters, when we read scripture, we will misinterpret scripture. We will take scripture out of context. And we will even complexify simple texts that are really just idioms. Why? Because cultural understanding and thinking matters. It matters. For example, Romans 3.3, 3, where Paul, in Romans 3, he's, he's, in the, he's, uh, he's what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, indicting, there you go. Indicting all of creation with sin. And he's describing how men's throats are an open grave, a sepulcher. He says their throats are an open grave. Now, if we use our Western thinking, we may be thinking open grave. Okay, that's a hole in the ground. It's a cask and this dirt moved up and it's open. But an open grave, again, from the cultural standpoint of a Hebrew was what? Like we see with Jesus. It was a tomb, right? It was above ground. It wasn't below ground. There was no dirt covering. And when you remove the stone of that tomb, what happens? The stench comes out. The smell comes out. The smell of death. The smell of corruption. So when Paul says that throats are an open sepulcher, he's talking about the stench of death and corruption that is coming out of their mouth. That is what he's using to explain this corruption. So he, he's speaking from a Hebraic standpoint of taking something that's astra, a, abstract and making it concrete. But that's cultural context. If we don't understand that, we can easily think of a grave in the ground which that's not what Paul was getting at there. Another place, Matthew 5.22, the evil eye. How many people have heard so many interpretations on the evil eye? Not people, um, 
the people not being aware of the evil eye, as we discussed when we went into the Sermon on the Mount, has to do with a person's greediness or stinginess. To look on a person with no mercy and no care, concern, that means having an evil eye. It was an idiom. It was a phrase. It's not something that we want to see. Where was the verb tense or, or, or where was this? No, that's not what you do with these texts. They're idioms, they're simple things, but because we don't know the culture sometimes, we will go and try to analyze something that's really meant to be simple and just read from a cultural standpoint. Another place is in Matthew 7, 2, where Jesus says, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now in Hebraic Jewish culture, that is known as measure for measure. That was a form of Hebraic justice. It wasn't nothing that's truly unique with Jesus. That was something that was said amongst the Hebrew culture. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. Um, let me give an example of measure for measure. Exodus 22, verse 23 to 24. I'll read it to you. It says, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan if you afflict him at all, and if he does not, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your father, your children fatherless. Do you see the measure for measure? If you afflict a widow and an orphan, he says, your children and your wife will become widows and orphans. That's called measure for measure. That was a form, again, of Hebraic justice. That's a cultural, a cultural um, phenomenon that's pretty unique to the, uh, well, it wasn't truly unique just to the Hebrews, but it was a major part of the Hebraic culture, measure for measure, measure for measure. So again, just in little examples like that, you can see that it's so vital that when I'm reading the scripture, along with my commentaries, I also want to understand the cultural context of the text that I'm reading. And for many, that's like, Brother Jerome, that's too much. I just want to read my scriptures. I want to get my Bible. I want to just go there, and, and I just want to just read. And I want to say, well, our culture has made it possible through innovation where you can dig a little deeper. Coaches of time past, they couldn't. They didn't have all the technology that we have. They didn't have, like I have, the Hebrew right on my phone that I can click on. They didn't have all of those things. But we now have them, and so we should use them. Because again, if you don't use them, if you don't take that extra step to understand the context, con I mean cultural context, you are likely just gonna bring your modern, American, westernized understanding to a text and take a text out of context and totally miss it. You won't even see the beauty because you're thinking from your Americanized Western cultural understanding. Is this making sense? So I said, this, again, this is just teaching. This is a, a tool I'm hoping to equip you with to kind of whet your appetite in some of the things. We got like four or five things we're just gonna briefly discuss and I hope it encourages you to really dig deep in your scriptures, understanding cultural context because when you do that, the scripture will come even more alive. You'll understand more things and you'll glorify more in God as you see and understand different aspects. Like I've, I've, I've had this conversation with some of you, I know Anthony I have, where I said if I could start it all over as far as my Christian learning of scripture, yes, I would go to the John MacArthur's and the John Piper's like I did, but I wouldn't stick all to Western theologians. I would go to an Orthodox rabbi if it was possible. I would go and fly to Jerusalem, I would study the culture because together they helped me to get a, a full grasp of the scripture so that I could see the glory of God in it.
Now back to our opening discussion of John 15. Um, when I talked this a few weeks ago, I, I made a point to bring out the fact that you cannot produce any God-glorifying eternal fruit on our own, that we must be attached to the vine, and Jesus, by way of the Holy Spirit, does his work inside of us to enable us to produce fruit. And while in that sermon I put more emphasis on the divine responsibility, or I looked at it from the divine perspective of bearing fruit, that is Jesus working through us, I don't want to leave you ignorant to your own responsibility in the fruit-bearing process. <laughs> And like I said, now this is where it gets tricky because we have already established that we cannot bear fruit on our own. It's not possible. We cannot bear that eternal God glorifying fruit on our own. And any fruit that we do bear, it's only because Jesus has done a work in us. But yet we are required to produce the fruit even though we can't actually do it. Again, this doesn't make sense in our logic. It doesn't make sense with our, our Americanized context, but guess what? This verse makes sense to the Hebrew mind. Why? Because from the Hebrew mind, they made use of something called block logic. Block logic. Block logic. From our, see, our understanding of logic is heavily influenced by the Greeks and the Romans, the Plato's, the philosophers. And so our mind says point A leads to point B, to C, it's this step. That's why they call it step logic. This point leads to this point, to this point leads to this point. And so when we apply sometimes that step logic to the scriptures, we find ourselves confused because we say it has to start with this point and it has to bring me to this linear place, this straight line, and take me to my conclusion. But there's places in the scripture when we apply this type of logic and it leaves us confused because we say, hold on, there's contradiction here. There's two different things here. But again, for the Hebrew mind, they have the logic of the Hebrews, I'm sorry, of the Greeks and the Romans, but they also had this thing called block logic. And block logic is where you put thoughts and ideas in self-contained blocks. Thoughts and ideas. So again, the Greek-Roman logic is step, like a stair. And I know this sounds like you guys are like in seminary school, but if you can get this, it'll make sense. One form of logic, step logic, A plus B plus C equals da-da-da. Hebraic logic is a set of ideas in one block, a set of another ideas in two blocks, and they're parallel to one another. Now let me kind of, um, let me give an example of that. There's this, this uh, it's a guy, he's a scholar, his name is Jeff Beener, he's wrote many books on Hebraic culture and, and language, and so he gives a great example of block logic, and I hope this makes sense for you. He says, in our culture, if we're going to tell a story, we would say something like this. I got up, ate breakfast, read the newspaper, I then drove to work. While at work, I read yesterday's report. At noon, I walked across the street for lunch. While there, I read a magazine. Back at work, I read my emails. After work, I drove home and had dinner. Right? That's a typical day. Right? But if a Hebrew using block logic would convey the story, the story would sound a lot different. It would sound like this. I drove to work. I walked across the street. I drove home. I ate breakfast, I ate lunch, I ate dinner, I read the newspaper, and I read the reports. I read a magazine and I read my emails. You see the difference here? How they put all the things in one block, all of my eating in this block, 
my, my food in this block, my riding in this block, and they're parallel to one another. That's Hebraic block logic. And so in block logic, you have oftentimes a divine perspective or block, and you have the human perspective or block. And those two stand right parallel next to one another. They run side by side. And so th this is why Hebrews don't have hard problems when it comes to paradoxical statements. So one of the great examples of the paradoxical things we find in scripture is with Pharaoh's heart. The question is, who hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? Because you have places like Exodus 3 where the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But then you have other places, Exodus 5, 8, 15, where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Using our block logic, we're, we, we're like, okay, who did it? Who was the one that started the first with it? Did, did God respond to Pharaoh's heart being hardened, so he just hardened him? Or did Pharaoh harden his own heart and God did this? That's us trying to figure it out using our own Americanized block logic of it has to be one starting point that leads in this perfect line to this. But from the Hebraic mind, it's saying, no, there's a divine block and there's a human block. Yes, God did it in this block. He hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh in his own responsibility hardened his own heart. And they leave the two just like that intention, as Pastor Brian would say. They leave them parallel. They don't try to, let me figure out how all this works. No, they realize there's a perspective. There's a divine perspective where God operates and moves and the human does as well. God hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Leave these two parallel right by each other. Yes, you've got to be stuck with the tension, but it's this human responsibility. It's this God perspective as well. So that's how they would deal with that type of logic. And so to quote a, a scholar on this topic, his name is Marvin R. Wilson. He's a scholar and professor of uh, biblical and theological studies at Gordon College. He says this. He says the Hebrew mind could handle the dynamic tensions of the language of paradox. Their, their logic, that type of logic is made to handle the paradox. So they don't have those struggles that we sometimes do. Which one came first, the cart or wait, the chicken or the egg type deal? You know what I'm saying? So we're always trying to figure out which one. And so they don't struggle. They, they leave understanding that God is sovereign. Man is this. We don't fully get it all. God has this, does this. Man does this. We leave it at that. We let those two blocks run together parallel. And we deal with the tension. And they just leave it at that. But our mind, we always want to figure out how exactly did it happen. That's part of our Americanized culture in a sense. Another place where uh, Hebrew block logic helps us is places like John uh, 6.33 and, and 44, which is one of my favorite texts. It's actually how I came to embrace um, Reformed theology when I seen that. But um, in, there, in that, Jesus says that he puts the responsibility on the person to come. So in John 6.37, I mean, it says 6.33. He says, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. But in John 6.44, Jesus says that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So, he's so we have this responsibility of coming to Jesus. But then, on the other hand, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And see, the, and for our American mind, that gets kind of confusing for us. We're saying, hold on, I want to come, we'll say, but only the Father's going to draw me, I can only come. And so we kind of go back and forth with this weird logic went from the Hebrew mind or perspective. Again, there's a divine block, a sovereignty over here where God moves, and there's a human responsibility that you must come. So we go forward, we preach the gospel to every nation, we preach the gospel to all people, but we also understand, again, that God has sovereignly drawn and chosen those who will come and be saved. And it doesn't work for many people. This doesn't work good for your apologetics with different groups of people because they're going to want to go with the illogical 
uh, the straight linear stuff, so this doesn't help you there, but for your own heart and understanding, like the Hebrew mind, we have the rest in God's sovereignty. We rest knowing that he's sovereign and he does what he does, and human has this responsibility to do what they do, and you leave it at that. And I know that's hard, but that's the perspective that the Hebrew mind has when it comes to some of those major paradoxes. They leave the deep things, the things that they don't understand, they leave that to God. They, they're more humble than many of us who think we need to figure out every aspect of how it all works. No, leave it to God. You have this responsibility to do this. You do that. God is going to do that. So when it comes to bearing fruit, we can't bear fruit on our own. Yes, we are responsible and required to go and bear fruit. We know that Jesus will work and do it in us, but we also have to go and stay abiding in his word, keeping his word inside of us by faith, him remaining in us, staying obedient to this word, and through that we will produce the fruit. So it works both ways. So that's a little introduction right there to block Hebrew block logic. If you want, you can do more research. I have books and things I could recommend to you, but that's just something to help you when you come to those paradoxical statements in scripture that gets you like, oh, what do I do here? Now the next thought is, we're going to look at abstract thought versus concrete thought. Abstract thought versus the concrete, tangible thought and expressions. When it came to like thought, or put it like this, from the Greek and Roman culture, they operated more from an abstract intellectual standpoint. That's where you have the philosophers. That's where our whole philosophy is based on the Greeks, the Socrates, the major philosophers. They dealt largely in the abstract, in the thinking. But the Hebraic people, they were more in the concrete, the tangible, the, the earthly things that you can touch and actually feel. So when you even go back to Romans 3.13, because remember Paul was a Hebrew, he was a Jew. You got to understand when he says their throats are an open grave, remember he's describing the stench of corruption that is coming out of their mouth, the evil things. He could have just said they're saying hideous and evil things, but he takes something hideous and evil which you can't touch, you can't hold, it's only something in the abstract, and he makes it concrete to, so that the people can fully get what he's doing or, or the point that he's making. That's taking something from the abstract and making it concrete. And so that's why Paul opens and says their throats are an open grave. And that's what you will find a lot throughout scripture. You'll find Hebraisms. Hebraisms are words or are, are, are phrases that are particular to the Hebraic culture. And in some of those Hebraisms, the writer will always take some abstract thought and he'll make it concrete, something earthly so that the people could fully get it. And a good example of this is the word look, right? I can say look. Look is an abstract thing, right? You can't hold look in your hand. You can't touch look in your hand. It just says look. But what you will find in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, when it says look, you will find something like this. Genesis 22:4, where it says, as opposed to the word look being used, the scripture says that Abraham lifted up his eyes. You see how that's more concrete than just look, something that's in the abstract. Now they're going to something that you can physically see, that you can touch. And so the scripture says that Abraham lifted up his eyes, taking an abstract thought to the concrete. Another one that's more popular, I'm sure that many of us know this. How does the Bible describe a person that's stubborn? What is the word that we often find in scripture when a person is stiff-necked? Good job. <laughs> If you were in school, I'll give you a star. Um, 
You're right. That's another Hebraism. Stubborn is abstract. It's something you can't touch. Stiff neck is something real, is tangible. And so the Bible will say these people are stiff neck to describe their stubbornness. Another one is um, in the book of Ruth, when Boaz goes to talk to the kinsman about um, purchasing the property from that Naomi was selling, because that kinsman had first right, first redeeming rights, um, to reveal this kinsman of the situation, he uses a Hebrew phrase of to unstop or unplug one's ears. So in the Hebrew, if you were reading Ruth 4.4, he would say Gala Odin, which means to unplug or stop someone's ear. That was the Hebrew way of saying to reveal or explain a situation to somebody. So again, just in that, you're seeing how the Hebrew mind, again, they're not the abstract intellectual Greek Roman thought, but they're always bringing something from the, con from the abstract to the concrete. So even in there, in describing a situation, they would say, to reveal something, I'm going to unplug their ear. Um, another good example of that is, uh, or this thought or topic, anybody heard of the word anthropomorphisms? Does anybody know what that means? Okay. It's a big fancy word. It's, it's, it's super long. You don't even want to learn how to spell it. <laughs> but anthropomorphisms, it's a big fancy word. It just basically means using human attributes to describe God or attributing human attributes to describe God. So as opposed to the scripture saying God is powerful, what will it say? The arm of the Lord. That's an anthropomorphism. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. That's the same thing. They're using these human traits and they're attributing them to God so that we can get an understanding of what God is doing and his power. Again, they're taking something abstract and they're making it uh, concrete or real, tangible. The other things you have is zoomorphisms. That's where the writer uses animal-like attributes and attributes it to God. So you have places like this. Psalm 63, verse 7, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. Now, some commentators will say that's talking about the cherub cherubims, but you also have Jesus saying uh, in Matthew 23, 37, remember Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Remember when he cries out and he says, how often I would gather you together as a hen gathers her broods under her wings. Again, you see these animal-like characteristics being attributed to God to make the point clear and so that the people can fully get the message and the understanding. That's what you find in the Hebrew culture. Now some of you are saying, Jerome, that's good, you're telling me this, the abstract, the concrete, but what, what is the major point? What can we learn from this? The point that I really want you to get from this is this. I hope and pray that your love, or that your understanding of God's love and kindness towards you is not only in the abstract. I hope that you just don't know God's love in this ethereal sense of my mother told me to it. Oh, I read it in the scripture that God's loved me. But I hope that you have God's love and that it is truly real and not just some intellectual thought, not just some intellectual idea that somebody told me, but it has become real and concrete, real to you. Because think about it, Romans 5, 8, what does that tell us? That God demonstrates his love. God didn't just leave his love to say, oh, I love the people. I'm just going to leave it in the abstract. But what does God do? He 
keeps the Hebraic form and he leaves the abstract and he comes down in human flesh in Jesus Christ and he actually dies in an actual space and time in history. He goes from the abstract down to the earth to truly demonstrate his love. That's real love. We have to know God's real love, not just this abstract thought of God loves me, but fully understand that God is real, that Jesus died on a real cross to reconcile men to God, and that event truly took place. Amen. We must know that. We must chiefly know what Jesus has done. And not only that, but you need to know that God is loving in your own personal life and circumstances and situations. You need to know that God and the situation that I was dealing at, yes, I know that God's a loving father, not just because somebody told me, but because when I was broken in the situation, God came and he healed me. When I was dealing with this situation, God came and brought me peace. When I was going through my trials, God came and did this. We're going from the abstract to the real walking with the Lord, real working relationship. That is something that we have to have. And that is something that which you will find in the Hebraic mind, that is what they were striving for. It wasn't so much, let's do all this intellectual exercise, but it was no, it was talking about walking humbly with your God, walking with him, truly experiencing God, truly having his love in my heart, truly. So that is one thing, my brothers and sisters, if you are, want to know God's love, you have to go and take it from this abstract thought. And you got to go and bring it home. And you got to go and reflect on all that God has done in your life. What he has done for you. And when you do that, it will not only assure your heart of God's true love for you, but it will also bring you to the place of worship. And I'm kind of getting into my future sermons, but that's what you will find when you go in the book of Psalms. I've, I've been reading all through the Psalms. When you go through the book of Psalms, the worshiper is always speaking on something that God has done for them, something that God has delivered them through. He's been their rock, their salvation, and it is through that act where God has demonstrated his love towards them, and it brings that worshiper to a place of worship. So we have to go, my brothers and sisters, and take that abstract thought and bring it closer to home. It's good to have our good doctrine. It's good to have our good theology, our good creedal statements, but if you don't have that true, real love with God, it becomes nothing. There's many people that have all of their doctrines lined up, all their ducks in a row, but they do not know the love of God. They just have the intellectual knowledge like the Greeks did. It's going to take the Holy Spirit, as Pastor Brian taught us in Romans 5.5, 5, to take that abstract thought and to bring it on down and to make it real for you, to make it real in your most inner, deepest part of you, which is what the Hebrews would call the heart. So the heart. God makes his love well known inside of our heart. But why does the Hebrew mind, why do they say the heart? Why do they use that organ? And not only do we find the heart written in scripture, but also in scripture we find the intestines used to express an emotion. We find the kidney used to express an emotion and a feeling. We find the liver used to express an emotion and a feeling. Why does the Hebraic mind use organs, these internal organs, to express some of the deepest and strongest emotions? Why? Because the Hebraic people were visceral people, meaning that they related more to the deep internal feelings than just your abstract intellectual thought. And so you find verses like Jeremiah 4:19. He says this. 
And this is out of the King James. Um, he says, my bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my heart. He's saying, my intestines, my intestines, I'm pained at my heart. So he's, what he's saying is that my intestines, which is deep down inside of me, he's saying that is how deep the pain is in me. See, they're looking from the eternal aspect of their body. They're seeing it as something deep, my intestines, that's way down inside of me. So the way that you would express that you are in pain and anguish is that you would point to your intestines. Deep down inside, he says, I am pained at my very heart, my bowels, my intestines. Again, they're staying in the concrete and not going to the abstract thought and saying, I'm just frustrated. But they're saying, deep down, I'm in anguish. Or one of my favorites is Proverbs 23, verse 16, where Solomon says this out of King James. He says, yea, my reins meaning my kidney, shall rejoice when thy lips speak right things. He's talking about his son. So he says that my kidneys will rejoice when your lips speak the right things of God, basically. That's how that verse literally goes. My, my reins, my kidneys. That is one way of expressing joy that I'm so happy down to the point in my kidneys that I'm rejoicing that you are speaking right. They're staying internal. They're keeping that visceral response of inside of me and using that to express this outward action. Or in Philemon 20, where Paul tells Philemon to refresh my bowels, right? Come refresh my intestines. Can you just see me saying, Brother Oleg, come and refresh my intestines, right? It's saying, come and refresh, renew my spirit, provide joy in me all the way down to my intestines. That's deep inside of me. That's the Hebraic way of saying, come renew my spirit. So we see that with the Hebrews, and this is very important for worship in the next sessions, we see for Hebrews that the whole body, again, the whole body was used to express an emotion. So guess what? So if Solomon can rejoice in his kidneys that his son is doing right, then what do you think we should be doing with our hands when we're praising and worship? What do you think we should be doing with our feet when we praise and worship? What do you think we should be doing with our body? The, the Hebrew had their whole body intact when it came time to praise and worship God. So we've seen even in their expressions of different emotions. It's all of you. It's the clapping of, I'm going way into my sermon. I'm going to stop right there. All right. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but all of the body should be praise and worship, but um, the next thought I want to give you guys, we have just two more I want to lay out here, and that's meditation. Meditation. Um, when we think of meditation, I'm going to go meditate on scripture. What, is your, what, what do we naturally think? Somebody just throw something out to me. If I say I'm going to go meditate on scripture, what does that mean? Concentrate. That's good. Okay. Anybody else? Huh? Pray. Okay. What else? If I say I'm going to meditate on the word. Looking for the real meaning of the scripture. Okay. Think. Look for the real meaning of the scripture. Solitude. Okay. Huh? Memorize. Okay. Y'all got it. Okay. <laughs> Silence often. When we think of meditate, from our perspective, it's, it's often, you know, getting God's word or whatever it may be. 
and reading it and just thinking on it and pondering it and, and, and thinking it over. And it's often involved silence where I'm just sitting. Um, I know sometimes I would just pace back and forth in my house. My wife would like see me and I'm thinking on the scripture. And we would say that that's meditating. But that's not biblical meditating. That's not in the scripture. That's our understanding, our cultural understanding of meditation. But the word for meditation in the Bible is Haggah. That's used in the Old Testament. Um, it's the one that's most often used. And it means to mutter, to moan, to make a noise. Meditation in the Bible is not silence. It's making a noise. Matter of fact, this, this word Haggah is actually used in Isaiah 31 verse 4 to describe the roar of a lion. The lion Haggah. He made a sound, a loud sound. So meditation is not this quiet thing that I just do. But it's something that I do with God's word where I'm, I'm speaking silent to myself. I'm rehearsing God's scripture. I'm saying this book of the law should not depart out of my mouth. And I'm, I'm speaking like this. And I'm, as God reveals to me, I'm amen, yes, Lord, thank you. I'm praying and I'm speaking lowly in a low voice God's word. I'm pouring over God's scripture and constantly repeated and saying it. That's meditation in the scriptures. It's not just being alone and being quiet. Meditation actually involves noise. That's why you see Joshua 1.8. Look at Joshua 1.8 where he says this. This book of the law shall not depart of what? Out of thy mouth. Hmm. But thou shalt meditate day and night. Do you see the parallel here? Out of your mouth, meditating on it day and night. Meaning I'm getting God's word. I'm pouring over it. I'm repeating it. As I'm praying, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it. And I'm, I'm thinking and I'm expressing. I'm not loud. But to myself, I'm muttering. I'm musing. I'm, I'm making a moan almost, if you will, over the word of God. Psalms 1-2. The blessed man finds his delight in the law of the Lord that he meditates again day and night. He's meditating day and night. Day and night he's getting that word and he's speaking it over him. He's pouring over it. He's saying the word over and over. And as God reveals things, he's amen and he's blessed. Yes. If you often see some of the Jews in Jerusalem, you'll find them, you'll see them. They have a book and they're just muttering different things. And sometimes they're even rocking back and forth. Again, that's called shuckling, where your whole body's involved in worship. And you're saying God's word. You're constantly speaking it. That's meditation. It's not just solitude. So when you meditate... Right. And that sounds, that's what we would probably think, right? You just pause. But go do your own. Don't just take my word for it. Go do your own Hebrew word search. Go look in the culture and you will see it's the word itself. That's why Isaiah 31 4 says the lion had God. He moaned. He made a sound. So it's, it's not this silent thing. But again, you go, you pour over God's word as you're studying it, speaking it to yourself. Meditation. So that gives you a different perspective on how we look at meditation. Um, last one is a benediction for everything, as I would phrase this one. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says to pray without ceasing, right? We can say, how do you do that? How do you pray without ceasing? Do you just literally walk every second and you pray? That's, yes, kind of it, but not so much. Um, I want to quote... Marvin, again, Wilson, a professor, a scholar in Hebraic culture and study, and he, and he talks about the Hebraic mind, 
how he gives thanks to God in every circumstance. So he says this, when hearing bad news, they're going to pray and give thanks. When hearing good news, praying and giving thanks. When smelling a fragrant plant, they're praying and giving thanks. When eating and drinking wine, they're praying and giving thanks. He says, in the presence of thunder, they pray and give thanks. Lightning, rainbows, comets, guess what? Even the ability to urinate. Thanking God. You, that sounds kind of comical, but it's every aspect of God's goodness. They're praying and thanking and giving a benediction to God for it. Every little thing. From the Babylonian Talmud, it states this about the urination. Blessed is he who has formed man in wisdom and created in him many orifices and many cavities in their body to let stuff go, if you know what I mean. So it's praying and thanking God for every moment. Guess what? When I finish playing the video game with my son, that should be a benediction. Thank you, Lord, for this joy I just had with my son. When I go sit in my car, thank you, God, for the HR engineer that hired a person to build this car. When I had some tissue that was really soft and warm to my nose, I'm saying, thank you, Lord, for this everything. When I put on my shoes, I'm thanking God. We want to stay in this mind of prayer and thankfulness to God for every little thing in this world. That's praying without ceasing, being thankful for all things. That's the Hebraic mind when it came to prayer and talking to the Lord every little moment. Pray and thanks God that you're standing here, that you get to sit here in the chair. Praise God for the person that made the chair. Everything you want to praise God and not just saying it flippantly, just praise God, but really mean it and being thankful and praising God for every little thing. You go out on a date with your wife and it's great, praise God. If it's not great, still praise God. <laughs> praise God for everything, everything a benediction of thanks and blessings to the Lord for what he has done. So again, I, what I've hoped that, I hope that I've whet your appetite to not only add commentaries to your study of scripture, but also cultural books that help you really dig into the people that actually wrote the scripture, the things that they were going through. Um, I hope that helps you to really dig in that area because it has helped me tremendously in understanding scripture and understanding things and understanding the context. And you see even more of the glory of God as you take yourself back into that first century or back to that period of the ancient Israelites and you look at it from not your American standpoint of 2019 but from that period that they were in. Context, cultural context matters my brothers and sisters. So again I, I pray that this has helped you in some sense. Um, I, I believe this will help us as we go forward in the next couple of weeks when we study worship and we look at how cultural or the mindset of worship in the scriptures and what we can glean from that and so I uh, hope this kind of sets us up for that um, let us pray Heavenly Father I thank you for giving us this understanding of different truths of your word Lord God oh Lord God may we be faithful students of your word seeking your truth in all aspects of our life God, we just want to get closer to you, Lord. We want to know more of you, more of your heart, Lord. We know you speak through your word, Lord, so reveal more truth to us, God. More truth for us to be at all with, Lord God. More truth for us to live truly the abundant life 
which comes through following you and your word. Lord God, we pray for more fruit in our own lives, Lord. We want to be fruitful Christians, bringing glory to your name and the way that we live in our obedience to you. Bless your name, Lord. God, I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters here today, Lord. Put a new desire in their hearts, God, to study your word, to go deeper in scripture, so that they may study to show themselves approved. In Jesus' name, amen.